I would take a bet that most of you have seen, or are at least familiar with, the 2004 movie titled The Passion of the Christ. It was a big deal when it came out, made a big splash. I still believe it's the highest grossing R-rated movie in North America still. It sparked the Christian film industry, which is alive and well today. Mel Gibson's movie was praised for its historical accuracy. If you remember, the characters all spoke in Aramaic, which is true, with subtitles there. The Passion also gains its R-rating with its gruesome yet realistic scourging and crucifixion scene. Mel Gibson wanted to show the cross for what it was, a cruel form of Roman execution. The Passion was, for Gibson, who himself is a Roman Catholic, a Passion project, He wanted the movie to be shocking in its portrayal of the violent physical death of Christ so that people would see the enormity of his sacrifice, that someone would go through so much physical pain and yet still come back with love and forgiveness. Movies 126 minutes long, about 100, are devoted to the physical suffering of Jesus. However, this fact led some to criticize Gibson's movie, namely that the focus was only on the physical sufferings of Christ. In that regard, what makes Jesus special? Well, nothing. Countless others throughout history have physically suffered more than Jesus, being maimed, tortured, even crucified. Many likewise died as martyrs, showing love and forgiveness toward their tormentors. So, in this sense, what makes the death of Jesus special or or different? See, there is a, a real problem here, a shortcoming, stemming from a failure to understand that the Bible is not just history. It's theological history. Scripture makes fundamental, life-changing truth claims. And many of those claims are bound up in the death of Jesus. It's not enough merely to state the facts that he suffered, he died. We must understand and also relate the impact of his death, the purpose of his death. What makes him different from the countless others who have died for noble causes? This is what Scripture does. You'll notice that the biblical account of his death is not just a relating of the facts and historical data, though that's included, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they each include special perspectives on the meaning of that death, what it was all about, what Jesus was accomplishing in that death. Jesus is not a normal person. His death is not a normal death. That's why these gospel accounts, they're not normal biographies. A normal biography of someone's life spends most of its attention on the life and the accomplishments of a person, and then a few passing notes on the person's death. But these Gospels, they they speed through the life of Jesus, and they spend the lion's share of their time on the death and the events leading up to the death of Christ. Already, that should tell you there's more going on here than meets the eye. This is not just history, but theological history. Truth claims are being made that are meant to confront your worldview and change your life. Now, we can't criticize any movie too harshly. They just have two hours to work with. But for us, as we take our turn in studying the passion of the Christ, we don't want to suffer from the same shortcoming. Far be it from us to come all this way in Mark's gospel and yet miss the point of his death. Far be it from us to see only his physical suffering and yet ignoring the vastly more important spiritual work that he accomplished. Yes, true, Jesus suffered physically immensely, but that's the least significant aspect of his death. It it receives the least amount of attention in the Gospels. And those with discerning eyes realize that the emphasis falls on the spiritual dimension of his death, 
the atonement he was purchasing and providing for mankind. Something we dare not miss as we come now to the passage of his death. You can take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark chapter 15. Open up to Mark 15. We've been going through Mark's gospel verse by verse, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. And the whole gospel has been leading up to this point, the death of Jesus. We've watched as Jesus, he's been arrested and tried, rejected by the Romans, rejected by the Jews, scourged and beaten. But that all means nothing if he doesn't take his place up on that cross. This is the reason for which he came. And now that we're finally here in this passage, we're not about to speed through it. We want to explore, yes, the historical event, but also the theological impact of Christ's atonement. This will be a passage we'll look at over several weeks here in Mark 15. not going to study every single verse this morning. But to get you started, get your bearings straight, I want, I want us to read through Mark's account of the cross, what we've been leading up to. So let's, let's see what Mark says about Christ's time on the cross. Let's just give it a read through. Starting in verse 22, follow with me, Mark 15, starting in verse 22. It says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scriptures was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. We'll stop there. This is Mark's account of the passion of the Christ. We'll be in this for many weeks. You'll notice here, very little attention is given to the physical suffering of Christ on the cross. Rather, most of the attention is given to the people around him. The two thieves, the soldiers, the people passing by, the religious leaders, the centurion, even God the Father himself shows up. And don't be mistaken, this is not just Mark telling us some random facts about the cross and the circumstances. Everything recorded here is for a reason. 
It's all given to highlight the identity and the mission of the one on the cross. Every detail is revealing something about who that person is and what he's doing on that cross. And with that in mind, I want us to begin tackling this account of the death of Jesus. Like I said, we'll be in this for several weeks, so we're not going to rush through. And this morning, I want to start today with less of a verse-by-verse exposition through this passage, although we'll get there, with more of a, a theological sermon. I want to give you a solid theological introduction to what is taking place here. I think that will give you a nice framework for understanding all the verses as we get to them to come. And so let's do this. By way of a theological introduction to the cross, I want to cover simply the, the date, the time, and the place of Christ's appointment with the cross. This was a divine appointment after all. Jesus was not about to miss the precise date, time, and place of the cross. And you'll understand what I mean as we go along, the importance of these details. So let's begin with this, the date of the cross, the day of the cross. I want to talk about and establish the day of the cross, starting with what day of the week was Jesus crucified? Simple enough. What day of the week? Very clear answer from scripture is Friday. He was crucified on a Friday afternoon. I know some people who strongly believe he was crucified on a Thursday because they have the misguided belief that Jesus had to be in the grave for a total 72 hours before he rose again. That's simply not true. In scripture, it's very clear he died on a Friday. How do we know this? Well, several times in all four Gospels, it's mentioned that Jesus died on, quote, the day of preparation, end quote, the day of preparation. That was a Jewish technical term for the day before the Sabbath, which was their Saturday. The Sabbath, as you know, was their holy day. You could do no work. You could do no extended travel. So the day before Friday became their day of preparation. They do all their cooking, all their traveling in preparation for the Sabbath. This is made explicit in Mark. I mean, look down at verse 42. We'll jump ahead to after he has died. But what does verse 42 say? In reference to burying Jesus, it says, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So that's very clear. I mean, that's Friday. It's Friday before sundown. Their day started sundown, so he died on Friday afternoon. Luke says the same thing. Luke 23, verse 54. Jesus died right before the Sabbath began, which is Friday at sundown. John 19:31. You remember the Jews? They wanted all three of the criminals to be dead and off the cross before the Sabbath began. So they went and broke the legs of the thieves. Again, he died right before Sabbath, Friday afternoon. So that, that's simple enough. First things first. Easy enough to confirm. Good Friday was indeed Good Friday, not Good Thursday. Jesus died on Friday afternoon, just hours before the beginning of Sabbath. And although this connection is not explicitly made in Scripture, we can probably take a stab at the significance of him dying on a Friday, right before Sabbath. We know that Christ's work of atonement on the cross through which he spiritually recreates believers, parallels in many ways God's work of creation. And so just as God, after his great work of creation, took a Sabbath rest, so we find Jesus, after his great work of recreation, takes a Sabbath rest, you could say, albeit in the grave. But there's more I want to point out when it comes to the day of the cross. 
I think the more sp- the more significant issue is not the day of the week he was killed, but the day of the year he was killed. Do you know that? Do you know what day of the year Jesus died? And the answer is the day before Passover. The day before Passover began. And that is much more significant, which is explicitly taught in Scripture. John's Gospel makes clear that's when Jesus died. John 18, 28 The Jews, remember, when they turned Jesus over to Pilate that morning, they refused to enter into the praetorium, that's his headquarters, because they didn't want to be defiled so that they could observe Passover that night. So he died right before Passover began. John 19.14 says the same thing. He was killed and condemned the day before Passover. The Jews traditionally observed Passover starting at sundown, which marked the end of the 14th day of their first month and the beginning of the 15th day of their first month. So that just means for the Jews, that Passover would have begun sundown Friday, which means that Jesus was killed right before Passover started. At the exact same time, by the way, that Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. Now, before getting into the significance of that, a quick side note here, because some of you might wonder, How can Jesus die right before Passover, yet the night before that, didn't he observe a Passover meal with his disciples, which which became the Lord's Supper? How can it be both? Well, this is something I explained in great detail back in a sermon on Mark 14, 12. But I'll give you the short version here. Jews back then reckoned days in different ways. Today, we count days from midnight to midnight. Nobody in the ancient world did that. Most Jews from the south, the ones in Jerusalem especially, they reckon days traditionally from sunset to sunset, 6 p.m., 6 p.m. or so. That's pretty typical. But other Jews, notably from the north like Galilee, they were known to reckon days from sunrise to sunrise. Both find precedent in the Old Testament. And when you work that difference out, the different reckonings of, of how you count a day, especially keeping in mind Jesus was a Galilean Jew, You see how in God's providence, Jesus was able to legitimately observe a final Passover meal and yet still die as a Passover lamb the next afternoon. Now, there are a lot more details that go into working that out. For that, go download the Mark 14, 12 sermon on our our website. Back in that sermon, I explained all the details of that, how there could be a, a dual understanding of Passover. I didn't talk about the significance. What I want to do now is the opposite get into the significance of this. So let me just point that out. Then the significance of this fact is namely that here, the day of Christ's death is the same day as the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. That That's the real point. That's no coincidence because God was arranging these circumstances to show that Jesus was dying as our new Passover lamb. And that is very much on purpose. You remember the context of the Passover, what's that all about? Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. God, though, set out to deliver them. So through Moses, he delivered ten plagues on the land of Egypt, both as a judgment on the Egyptians and as a means of making them let God's people go. The final plague, you recall, was the death of the firstborn. From Pharaoh to the cattle, the firstborn in all the land would die. None could escape. This judgment would come on all the land indiscriminately, but God made a provision 
whereby the sons of Israel could be saved, rescued from this judgment. God told them to take an unblemished lamb and on the 14th day of their first month, before sunset, to slaughter that lamb. Then they were, take, they were to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of their house. Why? Well, God himself explains, Exodus 12, verse 13. God says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When God saw the blood of the sacrifice, he would pass over the house and spare them. Hence, the Passover. This event was made into a perpetual day of remembrance for the Jews. Every year they would remember and celebrate this. And the most notable events were the annual killing of the Passover lamb and then celebrating the Passover feast, the meal. Well, when Jesus came, he redefined and fulfilled both. The night before, he redefined the Passover meal into a new meal, a Lord's Supper, we call it, He infused new meaning into the Passover bread and wine, being his body and his blood given over for you. In that meal, he foreshadowed his own death in the the cup, the blood, poured out for the many. Christ was setting himself up as the new Passover lamb, which would be slain, and its blood given for many. He was, after all, by virtue of the blood of the lamb, the life of the lamb that Israel was spared, They were redeemed by the blood, delivered from a judgment they deserved. But Jesus came to do that once for all, to provide a permanent, effective redemption of God's people through his blood. And now, if the blood of Jesus is found on the doorposts of your heart, so to speak, God will pass you over. You can be saved from the wrath to come. There is a judgment, another judgment coming on all the land. This is not just for the firstborn. This is for everyone who has sinned and none can escape. But you can be saved. You can be passed over if you apply the blood of Christ to your heart through faith. You must trust him for your salvation, your renewal. It's your only hope. I invite you to make sure you've done that today. Fittingly, though, not only did Jesus redefine the memorial meal of Passover, the day, um, but the next day on Friday, the day when the Jews in Jerusalem traditionally slaughtered their Passover lambs, Jesus redefined Passover itself. On the same day, the same time, they were slaughtering the tens of thousands of Passover lambs in the temple. Jesus was being slain on the cross, his blood shed and spilled for the many. Scripture itself drives home this connection, so you know I'm not making it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 calls Christ, for it says, Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. He's our Passover now. Peter says, 1 Peter 1.18, he reminds us that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you're redeemed with precious things blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of christ so like i said jesus wasn't just dying on the cross this was no ordinary death rather he was redeeming on the cross 
He was dying a death that was foreshadowed and pictured 1,500 years earlier. Life for a life, death for a death. And by virtue of his perfect life given over to death for us, God can justly pass over our sins. The lamb paid the ultimate price for us. This alone, this is enough. This alone contains a world of implications as to how we should live being so redeemed by the blood of this lamb. How should we live? Before we get to that, though, I want us to to keep pressing on and uncover the significance of his death on the cross. So keep that in mind, and, and let's move to number two, the time of the cross. First, from the date of the cross, we see Christ as our Passover. Secondly, now, let, let's talk about the time of the cross and let this unfold further. I want to talk about the exact time of the cross. This is something that Mark and the other gospel writers all make perfectly clear. Mark 15, look down at verse 25. It says it was the third hour when they crucified him. The Jews counted hours starting at 6 a.m., basically sunrise. So this put Jesus on the cross at 9 a.m. Then look at verse 33. After that, verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Jesus hung on the cross for a total of six hours. He lasted until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., at which he breathed his last and died. We will, like I said, all of this, but we'll study the the six hours of Jesus on the cross in detail in the weeks to come. For now, a simple question. Is there any significance to the time, time frame of his death? And here, again, I believe, yes. First, from Christ's time of death at 3 p.m., we have a confirmation that he did indeed die as our Passover lamb. According to Josephus and other ancient sources, Passover lambs were slaughtered at the temple between 3 and 5 p.m. on that day, on the eve of Passover, which began at sundown. So it seems that just the moment Jesus died, 3 p.m., the Jews began slaughtering the tens of thousands of Passover lambs in the temple. So not only did Jesus die on the precise day he was meant to die, but the precise hour he was meant to die as well, perfectly fulfilling our Passover for sins. But there's more here. We've already, you know, we've already covered him being our new Passover. We don't need to rehash that. In addition, though, we can say Jesus fulfilled all the sacrificial system. You remember that? Israel's sacrificial system God gave to them. God prescribed for the people a series of sacrifices, mostly blood sacrifices for their sins, the sin offering, the burn offering, the peace offering, the guilt offering, so forth. What was the function of all these sacrifices? It boils down to this. God is holy, Israel is not. God is holy, Israel is sinful. How can God keep his promise to, to be their God and to dwell with them? If they're so unholy, and how can the people ever draw near to such a holy God? The answer, the only way, is if God himself somehow deals with their unholiness and uncleanness. And that's what the sacrificial system provides for. God, in his great grace, provided a means for the sins of the people to be covered, that they might dwell in his presence, and they might be able to approach him. There was a cost to this, though 
to cover Israel's uncleanness. And the cost was a life, a life for a life. Blood had to be shed, a life given to cover their sins. If you are to live, if you're going to live, another life has to be given in your place. And hence the sacrificial system. But we know that even that's not enough. Even all those bulls and goats were not enough. Though God provided a gracious provision for the sins of the people, that's all it was. Just a provision. It's provisional. These animal sacrifices merely covered sin. They did not actually pay for sin. And so, although the people were allowed to dwell around God, they were always kept at arm's length. They could never really approach God's special presence. And hence, for example, no one could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, the the place where God made his special presence dwell. Nobody, nobody could go in there. None of the people. The writer of Hebrews pinpoints the insufficiency of that sacrificial system. Just listen along to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sacrificial sin was never meant to utterly solve, or rather the sacrificial system was never meant to utterly solve man's sin problem. It was a covering, not a payment. It's meant to point out man's need for a greater sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And in this regard, it was designed by God to point to Christ, who came as that greater sacrifice, that perfect substitute sacrifice. Hebrews 10 continues, verse 10 says, By this we we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So you understand this connection. Jesus, he's, he's this ultimate lamb of God for us this perfect, lasting sacrifice for us in all respects. And when you get that, it's not hard to see that in addition to his death being our Passover, he's all of our sacrifices. He just takes the whole sacrificial system and fulfills it. And there's one in particular I want to highlight. One sacrifice the Jews had, very important for them, was the daily burnt offering. The daily burnt offering at morning, at evening, twice a day, every day. This comes from Numbers 28, Exodus 30, or Numbers 28, Exodus 29. Twice a day, morning and evening, they would take two unblemished lambs and kill one in the morning, one in the evening. This was a perpetual sacrifice for all the people. It was to be done every single day. Why? Partly, it was an act of worship. And the burnt offering, the aroma was pictured as rising to God, being pleasing to him. But in addition, this daily sacrifice was given to remind Israel, this is the price, this is what it takes 
for God to be in your midst. You want God to dwell in your in your camp, the tabernacle in the middle of their camp. You want God to be here, it takes sacrifice. You are not holy. You need daily cleansing of your uncleanness if God is to be in your midst, in your camp. And that's why they had to make this sacrifice every single day, twice a day. It was never enough. They just keep doing it to sustain God's presence, so to speak. Here's what's interesting, though. At what times of the day did the Jews offer these morning and evening sacrifices? According to many ancient sources, like the Mishnah, Josephus, Philo, many others, it's well attested that these sacrifices, the morning sacrifice was offered at the third hour, or 9 a.m., and the evening sacrifice was offered at the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. Remember, their day ended around 6 p.m. It's something Mark's readers probably would have understood. So here's what strikes me. At the same moment as Jesus is being nailed to the cross and lifted up, the Jews were in the temple sacrificing the morning burnt offering. And at the very moment Jesus died, 3 p.m., not only were they beginning to slaughter the Passover lambs, but they probably started by the evening burnt offering right at 3 o'clock. And so Christ's time on the cross not only coincided with Passover, it also perfectly coincided with the morning and evening burnt offering made on behalf of all the people. Is that just a coincidence? Listen, I, I know this is a case where there's no verse in Scripture that explicitly draws that connection, so we must be careful. But I can't help but thinking this is no coincidence. I mean, why else do the gospel writers always, they just stress the time of the cross, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. They say it several times. Why give us the specific times? Further, given what we know of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice for sin, that he fulfilled all the sacrificial system, it's really no stretch of the imagination to say that he fulfills the daily burnt offering as well. And therefore, I think it's safe to say, not only is Jesus our Passover sacrifice, he's also our, our daily sacrifice as well, our perpetual access to God. His sacrifice was given for all the camp. And now through him, we can access God's presence, the Father. We have daily sins. We too need a daily offering. But Jesus came and he died so sufficiently once for all that we have no more need for an offering ever again. That's why we don't have offerings and priests. We just we don't need it. He's once for all the priest and the offering for all those who come to him forever. His death fully reconciles those who draw near. And his blood, being perfect, doesn't just cover our sins. It wipes them away. It pays for them once for all. And now through Christ, there's nothing that inhibits us from being in God's presence, from dwelling with him. And when Christ's death is applied to you through faith, you are made holy, you are made clean. It's like the song goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. My favorite line. And being so cleansed by that blood, now you can finally, truly draw near to God once for all into his very presence and God can draw near to you. 
This is what the death of Christ means for us. It's so much more than ordinary death. It's not just a guy dying on the cross. So much more. He's our Passover lamb. He's our daily sacrifice offered up as a pleasing aroma to God. One more. Number three. Let's talk about the place of the cross. We've seen the day of the cross, the time of the cross. Let's talk about the place of the cross and, of course, the significance here. Where was Jesus crucified? Mark 15, verse 20 says they led him out. Okay, out where? Where did he go? Verse 22. Look down at verse 22 of Mark 15. It says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Something I bet you remember. This detail kind of sticks out. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. Jesus was taken outside the city gates, outside the walls of Jerusalem to a high traffic area. The Romans almost always crucified criminals next to a major highway because they wanted everybody to see it and fear opposing Rome. Most likely Golgotha was their go-to crucifixion place. The word is Aramaic. Mark translates it for us. It means place of the skull. It's a bit cryptic. It could mean the place where they had left the skulls of the victims afterward. Or likely it was named because it was on a hill that looks like a skull. That's kind of the traditional view. But as before, okay, that's, that's pretty straightforward. The details of where he died. Okay, on, by the way, that word translated into Latin is Calvary. That's why we call it Calvary. Okay, pretty straightforward where he died. Is there any special significance to the place of the cross? Again, you know I'm going to say yes. This time there's a special connection between the place of the cross and the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which is also part of Israel's sacrificial system. So let me now give you the the quick recap of the Day of Atonement. This is another special day of the year, separate from Passover, another special day of the year for the Jews. The high priest was to take two male goats. He was to cast lots for them. The lot of the goat on which the lot fell, he was taken and, and slaughtered and sacrificed unto the Lord. The other goat was left alive. It became the scapegoat. One goat would picture the substitutionary bearing of sin. The other goat would picture our sins being removed far from us. The sacrificial goat was slaughtered. Its blood was then taken by the high priest into the temple. And that day only, that, that one day of the year, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, where God's special presence dwelt. And he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which sat atop the Ark of Covenant. And by doing so, he was making atonement, a provisional atonement for the sins of the people by the blood of that lamb, forgiving them. And for all the people, this is for all the camp. There's more details, you know, I'm summarizing. The other goat, the scapegoat, he left alive. He had a, he had a good deal. The priest would lay both hands on the head of that goat, and then confess the sins of all the people on that goat, thereby transferring the sins of the people onto that goat. So he actually didn't have that great of a deal. This goat was then sent away alive into the wilderness. It was gone, bearing on itself all their iniquities. And together, you can see these two goats serve as a dual picture of substitutionary atonement and the removal of sin. Like Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. 
And the scapegoat pictures that. This is God taking our sins and removing them far from us. And what's left? Nothing. We're clean in his camp. And of course, that was ultimately fulfilled by Christ. It was the death of Jesus that enables our sins to be totally removed from us. Listen to one of my favorite verses, Colossians 3, Colossians 2.14 rather. Speaking of Christ, and says, Having canceled out their certificate of debt, consisting of degrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taking it, taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus, he's like our scapegoat. All of our sins, they're transferred to him, and he just he takes them away, takes them far away. He'll never see them again. He bears all of our iniquities, and then he nails them to the cross. The only catch is that for that to happen, Jesus must be nailed to the cross as well. He becomes our sin bearer. And not only does the scapegoat picture Jesus, but so does that rejected sacrificed goat. That pictures him as well. Because the only way our sins can be removed from us perfectly is for one to die in our place for our sins. And that's what he came to do. You could kind of put the pictures together like this. All of our sin is written down on a piece of paper, our certificate of debt against us. We can't pay. It condemns us. We can't pay that debt. But Jesus snatches the paper, puts it in his own hands. He removes that debt from us. We'll never see it again. Amen, indeed. But then he pays the debt in full while clutching the debt in his hand. Both the debt and his hand are nailed to the cross. The nail goes through both. You could picture. He's slain in our place. And our debt, it's figuratively nailed to him. That's what the verse is saying. The picture you get is you don't get one without the other. You don't get the scapegoat. You don't get your sins removed from you without the other goat, the rejected, sacrifice slain goat. But as such, Jesus makes atonement for us. Through him, our sin is gone. We're we're perfect in him, made holy complete forever and therefore the way to God is open for us like I said in the Old Testament the the special presence of God in the Holy of Holies you had no access you could never enter only the high priest once a year could go into that room that the presence of God everyone else was kept away because of their uncleanness but through Christ's perfect finished ultimate sacrifice the way to God is open And we can now enter into his very presence in heaven. Even more so, God now causes his special presence to dwell in us via the Holy Spirit. This all comes through the death of Christ on that cross. And so it's no wonder, as we'll study later, what happened the moment Jesus died. Look at verse 38, if you're still in Mark 15. The moment he dies, it says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. You see what I mean when I say there, there's no insignificant details in the Passion account. These, these aren't just facts. It's all theological history. And in one verse, Mark tells us what Jesus did. The veil, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else, separated God and his special presence from everything else. When Christ died, that veil was torn in two, indicating the way to God has been cast open. Torn from top to bottom, indicating a divine agency. This was God's doing. And now all who repent and believe 
can enter in. All who appeal to the blood of the Lamb may enter. All are invited to enter. Have you entered? Have you gone to God through Christ for your redemption, your forgiveness, your joy? What's stopping you? He's your only hope. He's the only access to God. The only removal of your sins comes through him. Believe today. Now, to, to wrap it up, there's, there's one other detail I want to point out, though. One more. Back in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, when that goat was killed, the one that was slaughtered, its blood was taken in and sprinkled on the holy place. Okay. Normally, such sacrifices were then burned and eaten by the priest or the people. They would eat the bull or the goat. But not so with this offering. No. The goat, the sacrificed goat, and there's also a bull that were sacrificed, they were not to be eaten. But after their blood was splattered on the the mercy seat, they were to be taken outside the camp of Israel and burnt with fire entirely. The idea is one of rejection. These sacrifices making atonement were rejected. They were like, it's like they were made sin. And so their destiny was out of the camp. They had to be away from the people and God. Their fate was outside the camp, bearing the rejection due the sins of the people. And it's in this regard specifically that the author of Hebrews draws a connection between the place of Christ's death and the Day of Atonement. That's what we're talking about, the place of his death. So listen to the connection between the place of his death and that Day of Atonement sacrifice. Where did Jesus die? Outside the camp. And Hebrews 13, 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering of sin, they're burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So look, this is adding yet another layer to Christ's death and the significance. Not only were our sins transferred to Jesus, and carried far away. Not only did he die for our sins to make atonement, but he also suffered the rejection that was due all our sin. We should be the rejected ones. We should be suffering outside the camp of God eternally. Yet Jesus, in taking our sins, he had to suffer outside the camp. He had to be rejected by all, being made sin for us to be in the camp of God. This is why Jesus had to suffer outside Jerusalem. All the Gospels make clear he went outside the gates. They say that on purpose, outside the walls of the holy city. He was rejected by Israel, rejected by Rome, rejected by man. He was rejected by God on the cross because he was totally made sin on our behalf that we might become in him the righteousness of of God. All of scripture teaches this. 1 Peter 2:24 He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Ephesians 1:7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And we can't forget John 1:29 when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming onto the scene, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Christ, 
our sacrifice. He's our Passover sacrifice. He's our daily sacrifice. And he's our atonement sacrifice. All of this just comes from the date, the time, the place of his death. Jesus truly is the perfect, final, complete Lamb of God given over for you. And the only question now is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Like like the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice has been made, but its effects are applied only to those who look upon it with genuine repentance and faith. You must personally see Christ as your Lamb of God. The only one who can cleanse you and bring you to God, you must believe upon him. You must turn from your sins, turn to him, give him your entire life offered up. And upon giving your life to him, he'll show you what life is all about, what true living is all about. Yes, this is a costly thing. To give your life to Christ is costly. To make him your life is costly. If you side with Jesus, that means you are siding against the world. The world rejected Jesus, which means they're going to reject you too. But for those who see him for who he is and and see what he did on the cross for what it is, we're more than pleased to be rejected by the world, if that means being accepted by him. And so we are called, we're called to follow him out, to go with him outside the gates, suffering his shame and rejection. We too will be rejected by the world if we are to be accepted by God, but so be it. This is what the writer of Hebrews was getting at. Listen again, I read Hebrews 13:12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Where do you want to live? Heaven or earth? Where do you belong? With the things below or the things above? Do you believe? Make up your mind and then live accordingly. But I invite you to the lasting city above, which can only be entered through Christ and his blood. And if that's where you belong, live, live accordingly. How? One more verse, verse 15 of Hebrews. It says, through him then, through that sacrifice, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We've already been made secure, holy, forgiven. If you believe Positionally in Christ, you're you're secure in him. So now we we live as aliens and strangers in this world, simply waiting for the city to come. But we are not simply to wait. We are to witness to a lost and dying world. And we are to worship the lamb who was slain for us. So as you dwell in Christ and his sacrifice this morning, be renewed in your efforts to offer up your entire life as a living and holy sacrifice to God, acceptable and pleasing to him. He offered himself up for you. And as you come to him, now now it's your turn. Now you're the offering. You offer up yourself to him.
We don't pay him back. This is what he calls upon us, though. He's so worthy. We're now, our entire lives are the offering of praise and thanksgiving. And can I just finish with a taste, a preview of that heavenly worship, which should be ours right now? Revelation chapter 5 pictures the heavenly lamb before he comes again. And all the heavenly host is praising the lamb. And what do they say? What do they sing? Just listen, will you? Hebrew, or rather, Revelation 5, starting verse 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, to Christ, to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you are one of those thousands of thousands redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who is slain, that's your song. That should be your song now. That, that will be your song then, but that we want to make that our song now as well. Sing the song with your entire life. Give him the praise, the thanks, the offering that he is due, which is our entire lives, for the one who died to save us. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Christ, our Savior, our God, our Lord, our King, and our Lamb, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your utterly selfless, loving, perfect sacrifice. One we could not make ourselves, even if we wanted. One not all the animals on the entire earth could make for even a single soul. We were so lost, condemned in our sin, our rebellion against God, our wicked ways. Our debt of sin was long, and we we could not repay. There's nothing we can or could or ever will be able to do about our own sins. We would be swept up under the judgment coming on all the land, but Christ, our Passover, died to redeem us. You spilled your blood. You gave your life. You, you suffered our death on that cross. We see it was not just a death on the cross. Thousands died on crosses, but you, you were doing something special. By virtue of who you are, God in flesh, you were providing a perfect atonement for us. And now as your blood is on our hearts, we claim that blood. We, we identify with it. We, we believe in it. We can be forgiven, justified, redeemed, perfect forever. Access to God, complete. It's all through Christ. We thank you, Lord. It, it's our joy. It's our joy now to give you us. You're so worthy. You are the worthy lamb who was slain. And we, we happily offer up our entire lives to you. Take them. Take our lives as offerings on the altar. Lived for you. This world still hates you. It's turned against you. You will come. You will make that right. But for now, we... We just want to live for you, happily following the Lamb outside the gates, bearing his shame and reproach, but magnifying your name. So we thank you, Lord. We thank the Lamb. And we want to sing praise to the Lamb now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.